0: If you would, look at John chapter 11. Let's all focus on God's Word this morning as we see what uh, He has for us. If you will look at verse number 1. Remember, Jesus has just uh, kind of walked His way through. In, in chapter 9, He heals a blind man and deals with the conversations that come with that. In chapter 10, He teaches us that He is the good shepherd, that He is the door to salvation. And uh, we finished that chapter last week, chapter 10, by seeing that uh, some rejected that. They would not believe in Christ. But then we also saw that some believed on Him. And that's where the last verse of chapter 10 ends. Many believed on Him there. Jesus has left where He was. He was around uh, a city area and uh, near Jerusalem in Judea. And so a lot of uh, tension was building, drama was building. The religious leaders did not like Jesus. They did not want Him there. And so they kind of butted heads with him. And the last thing we see of Jesus in Judea is that they're going to try to stone him, that they're going to try to kill him. And so he kind of de-escalates the situation. He leaves. He kind of crosses out. You'll find in a moment he actually ends up about 100 miles away from where he was or where he's going in a moment in Judea when he goes back. And so he's kind of out there in kind of in a wilderness area, a smaller area, much smaller towns and villages and then we find this story in chapter number 11. Verse number 1, if you would, it says, Now a certain man was sick, named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with, with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, and whose brother Lazarus was sick. So we're introduced to the three main people outside of Christ in this story, Mary and Martha, who we already know of from other places in the Gospels, that they welcomed Jesus and the disciples into their house. And we saw that Mary, or excuse me, Martha was uh, kind of serving about and doing different things and hosting different people, and Mary, her sister, was there. Notice it says in verse 2, this is the Mary that anointed Jesus' feet. Ironically, That hasn't happened yet. It actually happens in a couple chapters, but John knows that we will know who that is, and so he's kind of giving us, letting us know. There's a lot of Marys in the Bible. It's a common Jewish name. You have Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Mary Magdalene. So this is a different Mary. Verse number 3. So Lazarus is sick. In verse 2 and then verse 3, "...therefore his sisters sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick." And when Jesus heard that, he said, "...this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby." Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was... Then after that, saith, unto his disciples, saith to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. We're going to look at this middle part of the text in just a moment. But uh, for time's sake, if you would, look down at verse number... Uh, we'll go to uh, verse number 31. And the Jews then, which were with her in the house and comforted her... So Jesus has come and he's arrived. And we're going to read that middle portion again in a moment. So Jesus has arrived to their house... He's come in, they send for Jesus, Lazarus is sick, but we'll see in a moment that in the middle Jesus tells his disciples, I already know Lazarus has already died. So in that process, remember we said it's almost 100 miles away, so by the time that news gets to Jesus, Lazarus is already dead by that point. Jesus waits a couple days. He goes, and as he visits, Martha comes out to him and says in verse twenty-four, "Lord," I, or verses uh, 21 through 24, Lord, I know if you were here, you could have healed him. And then down in verse number 31, Mary gets out and rushes to him. Verse 31 says, The Jews then, which were with her in the house, comforted her. When they saw Mary, that she rose up hastily and went out, followed her, saying, She goeth unto the grave to weep there. You kind of imagine these little... Uh, dramatic people that are following Mary around. In this culture, they would actually, if a family was wealthy enough, they would actually pay people to come weep after the death of a loved one. Uh, It's like paying people to go to a funeral. They'd pay weepers and wailers, and they'd come in. It was just a a big ordeal. So there's lots of people there. And if you would look at verse 32, Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he, gro- he was groaned in the spirit and was troubled, and said, Where have ye laid him? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. And then the verse that all of our children love to memorize, Jesus wept. But it's a powerful verse when you realize what it means. Then said the Jews, Behold how he loved him. Some of them said, could not this man, which opened the eyes of the blind, have caused that even this man should not have died? So we've seen the Jews say this, Martha has said it, Mary has said it. They said, if Jesus had been here, he could have healed Lazarus. So they have faith to an extent. They're not all doubting, and they're not all angry with Jesus. They know, and they believe in their hearts, Jesus could have healed. But Jesus had an idea far bigger than, than just healing Lazarus. And he had an idea far better than just getting rid of sickness. For his glory, he was going to raise him from the dead. Verse 37 says, And some of them said, Could not this man, we just read, which opened the eyes of the blind, have caused that even this man should not have died. Jesus therefore again groaning in himself. Notice he's groaning that their faith is there but not full. It says it was a cave and a stone lay upon it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. Jesus saith unto her, "Uh, said I not unto thee, that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, and he prays this prayer not for himself. He's already been praying, evidently, with his father, but he prays this so that others around him can hear it. Father, I thank Thee that Thou hast heard me. He says, You've already heard me. And I knew that Thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they, that they may believe that Thou hast sent me. And then here's the miracle. And when He had thus spoken, He cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he, and he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound with a napkin. And Jesus saith unto them, Loose him. Let him go. Let's pray one final time that God will bless as we try to uh, understand exactly what he has for us, how this compares to our lives today. Lord, we thank you for your word. I thank you for this story, um, that you work miracles that are greater than we can even imagine. And though, Lord, we may not see a physical resurrection of the dead in our day, at our time, we know that you will raise us to new life spiritually that if we trust in your gospel we trust in who you are we believe in you and repent of our sins that we can follow you we can follow you into eternity and we pray that we like these people would have faith but that like this story you would work in us and we pray that you glorify what is done here today and we pray this in your precious name amen I ask you a question as we get started this morning what difference would it make in your life If you could be completely convinced of three particular things about Jesus, and we're going to see these things in this story today. If you could be convinced, number one, that Jesus loves you, that Jesus deeply, sincerely, as real as the person across the aisle from you, He is there and can have a relationship with you, and He loves you deeply. Would that change our lives? Number two, if we believe that Jesus knows what He's doing. That Jesus knows exactly what is needed at different times in our lives, and though we may not understand every circumstance and every issue and every problem with our lives, if you could understand and truly believe that number one, Jesus loves you; number two, Jesus is in full—or con- number two, Jesus knows what He's doing—and then number three, Jesus is in full control. Because someone can know what they're doing, but if they're not in control, it doesn't really matter. And someone can love you. But if they don't control every circumstance of of your life, then they can't really help you through every circumstance of life. But Jesus is all three. Jesus deeply loves us. Jesus is fully in control. And he knows exactly what he's doing. And so as we look at this story this morning, we can learn from this, and how would it change our lives? As someone has said, from the tip of your head to the end of your toes, if you could just be certain. If you could be intellectually certain. There's all sorts of ways that we need to grasp this. If you could be intellectually certain. I can say, is Richmond, Virginia, or is Richmond, the city of Richmond in Virginia? And you could look at a map. We're here in Richmond, so obviously we know that it is. You look at a map, point on the map. You could be here. You could intellectually know Richmond is in Virginia. And as sure as you can know Richmond is in Virginia, you can know that Jesus loves you and that He's in control. But beyond that, we could be emotionally certain, like a little child's reliance and love. They're emotionally certain. My kids are 5, 3, and almost a year old, and there are a lot of things in this life that they don't know, but one thing that they do know, I hope and think, is that their daddy loves them. And they, are, they don't know exactly how all that works, but they're emotionally certain that I love them, and to a certain extent, they believe that in their lives, I am in control to a small extent. If we could be emotionally certain, if we could be experientially certain by our own experience, the same way when you get ready to sip your coffee in the morning, you know you're gonna enjoy it. Why? Because yesterday you enjoyed it too. And the day before, and the day before. When we go eat barbecue in a few moments, for some of you or some of us, and you get ready to take a bite of the barbecue, you're gonna, I hope you trust us enough that you think this is gonna be good. Why? Because some of you have had it before. And by your experience, you know this is something you're going to enjoy. But by experience, we should understand that Jesus loves us, that Jesus is in control, and that Jesus knows what He's doing. But more than that, even existentially, we can be certain, just as sure as we know that gravity exists, right? We're sitting in chairs. We haven't strapped these to the floor. And there's no seatbelts in them because we know about the existence of gravity, that that's the way that it works. And we live our lives, get this very uh, intently, we live our lives knowing that gravity exists, and we make decisions based on that, right? When you go buy a car, you're not looking for some anti-gravity mode in your car. Why? Because gravity exists and you don't have to worry about that. When you go and you uh, do uh, walk to the store, you know you're you're not weighting yourself down as you walk in, hoping you don't fly into the atmosphere. You just walk to the store. Why? Because you know that it exists and it changes the way that you live your life, though you don't even realize it. You live your life completely involved and completely influenced by the fact that gravity exists. But in the same way, our lives spiritually should be completely influenced in ways that we're conscious of and ways that we're not conscious of, that Jesus loves us, that Jesus is in full control, and that Jesus knows what He is doing. As we look at this chapter and we see these different things were true in this story, we can know also that they're true in our lives. Back in verse 1, it tells us that Lazarus, it says Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha, says that they went and they got Jesus. These are two different Bethanies, actually. Jesus was near another Bethany, uh, and so he traveled that hundred miles. And, uh, but notice, I want you to notice first some different things. Now, why would he travel a hundred miles to go heal this man or work this miracle in this way? You say, well, it was to show his glory, and it was. It was because eventually, soon he was going to be in Jerusalem anyway. And and that's true, too. It's because it's how God planned it, and that's true, too. But there's there's an even deeper meaning. Notice if you would in verse number 3. Notice it says, Therefore his sisters sent unto him, saying... So the sisters send this message to Jesus. So the sisters know. What do they know about Jesus? Look at the end of verse 3. Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick he says the one you love jesus then it didn't reverse it the other way though it could have been jesus the one who loves you is sick but it doesn't it says they sent to jesus the one that you love is sick notice if you would in verse number five now jesus loved martha and her sister and lazarus it tells us that again look at verse 11 These things said he, and after that he saith unto them, this is Jesus speaking, he says, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth. What is he saying there? That word friend is a a word of affection. It's a deep meaning. He says, Our friend, the one that I love, the one that I care for, there's something wrong with him. Look at verse number 33. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping. And the Jews also weeping, which came with her. So what did Jesus do when he saw the sorrow of Mary and those around her? says he was groaned in his spirit. He was troubled by their sorrow. Not, Not necessarily a lack of faith. We'll get into that in a moment. But he was bothered that these people were sad. He was touched by their affliction. Verse number 36. Then the Jews said unto him, or verse 35, excuse me, Jesus wept. He sobbed. He mourned, and then verse thirty six. Then said the Jews, "Behold, how he loved him!" So even those around him knew Jesus loves these people. Verse thirty eight says again, "Jesus therefore again groaning in himself, coming to the grave." Jesus was emotional. Jesus loved these people, and sometimes sometimes we can get detached from the fact that Jesus was not just God, but that He is fully man, fully God, and fully man. He loved the way that we loved. He had relationships the way, in a way that we had relationships, but in a more perfect love than we have. And this passage over and over, this long passage about this story, doesn't go into detail about how he healed Lazarus, or how the uh, synapses started firing again in his body, or had he decayed at all, and then Somehow his muscle regained and, and his heart started pumping again. How, it doesn't go into any of those details, though we're curious about it. What it does go into great detail for is to tell us that Jesus loved these people. He loved them deeply. He was emotional for them and toward them. We know that it says that they were his sheep, that uh, they were uh, ones that he had called to himself. And we know that from the rest of the Gospels, that Mary and Martha and Lazarus, they were actually a prominent and prosperous family. Uh, So many, so that look how many people, it says, many Jews came out uh, to see them. to mourn with them. So they were influential. Back in other chapters where it says that they invited Jesus into his house, Luke chapter 10 talks about a certain woman received Jesus into his house. And remember, Martha was going about, cumbered about. She was very anxious with how much she's serving. Now, if it was just Jesus in the house, right, she probably wouldn't have been that anxious about it. She probably wouldn't have been so busy. But it's a picture that there's a lot of people there. And that was not normal for that culture to just have all these people in your house. So they're affluent, they're probably wealthy people, their livelihood, their house, they have all these different things. Later it says that Mary's going to take a, a, a little vat of ointment and break it and wash Jesus' feet with it. It tells us that that oil or that ointment was worth a regular man's, a whole year's worth of wages. Now it wasn't that she just came across it somewhere, she was a type of family that that's what she had, she was affluent, but she gave those things to Christ, and in spite that we have seen jesus love beggars and we have seen him heal blind people people that can't walk lame people we have seen jesus work and love all sorts of people but now there's this affluent group but jesus could have said you know you have all you need lazarus lived a good life lazarus did all these different things it would have been easy we don't even know how old lazarus was he could have been 85 90 years old and and it's well he was older and but no jesus has emotion about this why Because he loved them. And what the Bible teaches us that he felt about this family, he feels about us too. If you go back, and uh, we won't for time's sake today, but if we were to go back to the chapter we were in last week, that John 10 says that that, uh, the sheep belong to Christ, that he's the good shepherd, that Jesus knows their names and that they know his voice and they follow him and there's a relationship that's the kind of relationship he had with mary and martha and Lazarus. he knew their names he knew where they were he knew the things about them but the bible just one chapter previous says he knows the same things about us that he knows our names that he's deeply involved and that he greatly loves us the message that christ sends on the cross and how he lived his life here on this earth and sacrificing himself for us tells us what that He loves us. And you can be sure this morning, the way that Mary and Martha were sure, that Jesus loves you. What's even more surprising, I want you to notice in verse number 5 in a moment, is what Jesus did because he loved them. Look at verse number 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And when he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. I want you to think about that for a moment because there's a key word there in that verse, in verse number six. When he had heard, what's the next word say? Therefore. The word therefore just means so. Because he had heard these things. Therefore, if you could, you could put that word at the beginning of the sentence and it wouldn't change any of the meaning. It would be exactly the same sentence structure and everything, so read it that way. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Therefore, so. Think about it that way. Jesus loved them. And so, when he heard, therefore, that he was sick, he jumped up and he ran as fast as he could to Bethany. That's what we think it should say. When Jesus, therefore, was sick, he called out from 100 miles away because he loved them so much, so he healed them from 100 miles away. He sent a message back and said, I'm coming and I'll heal him and make him better. It doesn't say that. It says, Jesus loved them, so he waited. And there's moments in our lives where we may know in our minds that Jesus loves us. But what we don't understand is why he waited. Why does he delay? Why does he work in our lives the way that he does? Can you imagine me and Mar- Mary and Martha? I don't know if they ever found out that Jesus waited two days. It's interesting that they say that Lazarus was in the grave for four days. In certain Jewish beliefs and cultures, they believed a kind of an outsider belief or view that your spirit could kind of hover above your body for up to three days. And so it's interesting that Jesus waits for four, kind of to prove this is my miracle. I can do things that no one else can imagine. Well, why would Jesus wait if he loved them? It seems like it should say, when Jesus heard, or when Jesus loved Mary and Martha, and so when he heard that he was sick, they, they did these things, but the weather is bad and he couldn't get there for two days. It doesn't say that. But they ran into trouble along the way. But it was a long journey. It took them a long time to get there. No, it doesn't say that. It says, he stayed there and waited. Why did he do that? Look at verse 7. Then after that, he saith unto his disciples, Let us go into Judea again. His disciples said unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee. Goest thou hither again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of this world. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth, because there is no light in him. Now, this is kind of a, a, a weird figure of speech that we would not necessarily understand in our day. But basically, to get it simple for us, Jesus is saying, Look, while there's day, you gotta got to walk while there's day. While I'm alive. He knows he's going to die in a few chapters. While I'm alive, I can work. When I'm dead or when I'm gone or when I've ascended back into heaven, I can't do this work anymore. So while I'm alive, I'm going to do this work. That's really what he's saying there in those couple of verses. And look at verse number uh, 11. These things said he, after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go, that I may awake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, uh, if, he, <clears throat> excuse me, if he sleep, he shall do well. The disciples don't get it. They're like, well, rest would be good for him. You know, maybe he'll get better. And Jesus, notice if you would, verse number 14, then said Jesus unto them plainly. He had to just kind of lay it out for them. Lazarus is dead. And I am glad, therefore, for your sakes, that I was not there, to the intent ye may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. So what is he saying? I waited to do a greater work than just healing him. Back in verse 4, it says, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. So what is Jesus telling us? Yes, we see that he loves Mary and Martha, and yes, we know that he loves us in our lives. If we're believers, if we, if we truly, hopefully you believe that, that God loves you, Jesus loves you, and he loved these people. But in spite of loving them, and because, as that verse says, therefore, because he loved them, because he loved us, he works in a way that they cannot understand. And he does something far greater than just healing a man's sickness. Could you, you, know, you could say, well, he probably, he might have, he, maybe he would have gotten better anyway. Maybe this was just the flu. Maybe this was just some sickness. But Jesus, right off the bat, hears in verse 3, Lazarus is sick, and then in verse 4 he says, I'm going to do a work so that God would be glorified and people would see I'm the Son of God. You say, well, how how is that like loving? That sounds almost selfish that Jesus would do that to glorify himself. But Jesus, in his love, is trying to show them something far greater. And what greater act of love could there be than to teach these people who he really was? See, there's more to understand in this story than just there was a man that was sick and there was dead. There's a greater goal to God's love than giving us exactly what we want. Why is that important? Why is that important in our lives that we understand that Jesus doesn't, often, doesn't always give us what we want, but he always gives us what we need? What they wanted was healing right now, and Jesus had these things in mind, bigger and better. The maximization sometimes of our happiness is what we focus on. But Jesus doesn't operate the same way. We all sort of tend to define love in different ways. And most of the time, it, it's a way that meets our immediate happiness. When a child says to a parent, oh, well, can I have this or can I have that? And the parent says, well, no, you can't have ice cream. It's the third time today because you were at your grandparents' house. And you can't have an ice cream a third time today, you know, whatever. And, you know, the kid thinks, well, that you just don't like me. You don't love me. If you're a parent this morning, you know that that is not the case. In fact, you make those decisions sometimes because you love them. And so it happens with God, too, that we have needs and we have hurts and we have fears and we have pains. And sometimes if God does not come and do what would make sense to us, we think, how can he really, really love me? And we all want to be happy. We want pleasure and not pain. We want certainty and not questions. We want people to say yes to our hopes and to our dreams. But sometimes Jesus operates in a greater, a bigger, and a better way. The whole Bible teaches that in that way. So I want you to think this morning do you base whether you believe that Jesus loves you on your circumstance, or do you base it on who he is as your Savior? Our Heavenly Father loves us, and the whole point is that the Son of God of this miracle is that the Son of God could be glorified. And here is why this action of waiting is love. Because Jesus knows, get this carefully, Jesus knows that in the long run, that Mary and Martha and Lazarus, these people at Landmark, that you and that I will be more helped to see God's power than to be spared from pain. Let me read it again. Because Jesus knows that in the long run, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and we ourselves will be helped more in this world by seeing His power than being spared from our pain. And Jesus says, if you can trust me, if you can depend on me, if you can rejoice, if you can believe, that is the most loving thing that I can do for you is to build your faith in this earth. Verse 42 tells us that the miracle, why was the miracle? Verse 42, as Jesus was praying, He says, "Uh, I knew you would hear me, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. Jesus wants them to really, really get it. Why? Because He loves us. And because He loves us, He tries to teach us that He knows what's best. And I wonder this morning in your life, recently or some could be some faraway time in your past that you may still doubt or have some sort of question about or bitterness or or just a sour a sorrowful time of life that we kind of wonder how is God expressing his love in that moment and in that way but be assured that Jesus still loves us but he also knows what he's doing and sometimes That is not what we think he should do. And sometimes in our lives, Jesus works in a different way than we want him to. And that should be a strengthening for our faith and not always weaken it. It's not always the case because we are weak and sinful people. But the truth is, Jesus, this morning from this passage, is trying to teach us he loves us and he knows what he's doing. And that's a good thing because it brings us to the, the final thought. Because those two things would not matter if we didn't have that third part. That Jesus is fully in control. Because Jesus gets up. He says, let's go. And there's two, two kind of interesting statements there. The disciples say to him, kind of in that verses 8 through 13 area, they say, wait, we're going to go back to Judea and Jerusalem. They just tried to kill you there. So why are we going to go back? And... Uh, Jesus says, Well, I have a work to do. Ironically, verse 16, out of all of them, doubting Thomas, which is called Didymus, that means twin. So evidently Thomas was a twin, and he's this doubting Thomas. (laughs) He's the one that says, Unto his fellow disciples, let us all go that we may die with him. So doubting Thomas is amped up. He's ready to go. Somebody gave him a good pregame speech, and you know, he's ready to fly. And Jesus says in verse 17, then when Jesus came, he found that he had lain in the grave four days already. Now Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs off. So that's not very far away. And so some of the same Jews that were just in that group that they saw tried to stone him, now they come out and they see Jesus work in a whole different way. And they came to comfort them. And then verse number 20, Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hast been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it to thee. And Jesus saith unto her, he tries to tell her, Thy brother shall rise again. Verse 24, Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So she's trying to express faith. You see that there? She's trying with all that she has. Jesus, I believe you. And I'm not angry with you. If you had been here, I know you could have healed him. And Jesus says, well, he's going to be raised from the dead. And she says, well, yeah, I know one day we're going to see him again because he believed in you and he, he followed. And, and we're going to see him again in the resurrection. And, and Jesus, kind of he's trying to expand her mind. I am far greater because I'm fully in control. See, they, they saw an extent of life, Mary and Martha and those around. They saw Jesus. Jesus can heal and Jesus can help to a point. And Jesus is trying to tear that down and say, no, it's infinite. And we think that in our lives, sometimes we set barriers, right? Jesus can help me to a point. Like they did, they say, he, he, he can help heal. But now he's dead. And so Jesus' extent of his help is gone. And sometimes we in our lives have a problem or a situation. It could be a financial problem. It could be a health problem. It could be a relationship problem. It could be really anything. And we think Jesus can help to an extent. But then there's this kind of place in the world that's really out of his reach or control. But listen, if far deeper than that, there's a problem in our hearts that when we are born in this world, we are sinners and we are full of sin and can do nothing right in and of ourselves and we cannot find the way of salvation on our own. And it is only by grace through faith and a trust in him and repentance of our sin that we can ever be saved. That's the greatest problem. And Jesus takes that and destroys death and destroys the result of sin, and He lets us follow Him now as our Savior and our King, and we can go into His presence, and we can pray and ask anything of Him. That's the greatest miracle that could be worked in this world. But sometimes we still, in our brains, though He has worked that great miracle in our lives, kind of cap Jesus that He only works so far. Let me sidestep for just a moment. I think one thing we struggle with often as Christians is there's an extent, put a cap on how much Jesus can heal us from sin. We kind of just think that because we're in this world and we're sinners, until Jesus takes us back, there's this sin that's in my life, and it's just, it's got me too much. It holds me too fast. It, it, it has too much of a, of a hard grip on my life. And I've just always had this sin in my heart or in my life. Or I just struggle with this. Or I always seem to fall back into this sin. And we kind of cap Jesus' work in our lives. We say, there's an extent that you can work. But there's a sin deep in my heart where, Jesus, one day in the resurrection you'll heal. And Jesus tells us this morning, not only do I love you. Not only do I know what I'm doing, but I'm fully in control. Look, if you would, down in verse 33 as we finish, it says, "...when Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping which came with her, he groaned in the Spirit and was troubled." And I think we have an amazing picture of the fact that Jesus was human, that God came as a man to fix our problem of sin. And that is a big deal. There's different belief systems, even back into the early church, and every church age kind of has their battle or that they struggle with and different things. One of the first battles uh, was these two groups. There was this group, uh, there's this guy in Africa named Arius, and he kind of taught this thing, and the people that followed him is called Arianism, and uh, they, they, he, they believed that Jesus was a uh, created being of God, kind of a messenger of God, but that God, like, at some point was like, I'm going to save these people. So then he just created Jesus and sent him. But Jesus is God himself. There's another group called the Docetists, and they believe that Jesus was a form of a man, but not a real man. That God just sort of, kind of like a jello mold, made this fake droid of a human and sent him there to, to die for our sins. But this showed Jesus was fully man. He had emotions. He experienced pain. He had needs physically like we did. like we do. And Jesus groaned in his spirit. He has moved in his spirit. And I want to think for just a moment about why that's important. In verse 35 it says, Jesus wept Verse 38, Jesus therefore again groaned. So he groaned, he was moved, he wept, he groaned, and he, he was moved. Why is that? There's a lot of different, I've heard a lot of different things through different things. He says he wept at their lack of faith, that he was moved, because it always kind of comes after they say you could have healed them, And so they, he, he was moved by their lack of faith. But I really don't think that's it, because they tried to express faith. And unlike other places in Scripture, Jesus does not rebuke them for a lack of faith like he does the disciples in other places. So I don't think that's it. Like they said, oh, he's weeping because he loves Lazarus. And that's true in a way. But Jesus knows that in like five minutes, he's going to heal Lazarus. He's going to be alive again. So I don't think that Jesus is necessarily weeping and grieved in his spirit because Lazarus just died, because he knows he's going to raise him from the dead in a minute anyway. Jesus, I think, is truly moved and grieved in spirit when he looks around at the state of things. He sees Mary crying. He sees his friend Lazarus dead. He sees these Jews lost in unbelief, and and they're just kind of trying to follow along. And Jesus looks at all of it, and he just sees that his world that he created to be perfect, and the, the people that he made to have a relationship with him, that things are not right in this world. And it moved him. Jesus doesn't sit up in heaven, God does not sit up in heaven, and he's not amused by a struggling earth. We have to be careful not to portray that in our own hearts, but also to others, because that is not what he teaches God is not up in heaven toying with it like a Lego set. Hmm, let me try this. No, that didn't work. Let me try this other thing. Jesus is moved by the fact that the earth is not the way that it it is going to be or that it was created to be. He is moved by the fact that these creatures that He loves, these humans that He deeply loves, sorrow and have pain and sin and death in their hearts. And it moves Him. And it moves Him in our lives to know Jesus doesn't look down unmercifully on your life. When you're struggling, when we're having problems, when we're having issues, when we have sorrow in our hearts, Jesus does not look down on our sorrow and he's not amused. He's moved because he loves us. And it's been a comfort these last few weeks since my dad passed away to know that Jesus does not look down amused, but he looks down moved. And as we see how moved he was by these people, these sinners, it makes me amazed that he's moved by me. And it helps me to know that I can feel the same way. (laughs) I was trying to explain to some people this week about how I have felt through some of the situation. I've told some of you the same thing. You try to be spiritual in this moment of loss and in this dark moment of life. You're trying, how, do I, how do I be spiritual? And there's all these happy things. You can say, well, he's in heaven and there's this, this you know, reunion that's going to come and those things are happy. But God does not intend for us to be happy about death because it's part of the brokenness of our sin. And one thing that I have found comfort in, in a way, is that Jesus felt this way about death and so can I. I can hate the fact that sin destroys and that someone that I was a hero to me that I loved and he was in no means perfect but in those moments that I'm watching this happen and he passes away and later as I'm thinking back and meditating kind of thinking on it I'm like sin can do that to this person that I loved and I thought was great and all these different things that's how evil and awful sin is. And death and hard circumstances in our life should not turn us against God. It should turn us against sin. And I hate sin in a new and different way these last few weeks. There's a man that wrote. Uh, he's written some books. He's a um, he's a astrophysicist of some sort, and uh, he has come to the conclusion that. There's no true greater being and all these different things. And uh, one of the quotes that he said, he put this on his Twitter account not long ago, I think sometime back in the spring. How's this for your nice uh, morning Twitter message? He said, the universe is unaffected by our suffering and is not devastated by our grief. Have a good day. (laughs) That's all he put. But the message that we see in this passage this morning as though our physical universe may not be, our Savior is. He's affected by our suffering and He's agitated by our sins in the sense that He is angered against us. So much so, so much so, that in a few chapters, He's going to die. You see, He raised Lazarus from the dead. But Lazarus is going to die again. He hadn't been healed from his sin. There hadn't been a great enough sacrifice. There hadn't been this perfect Savior. And this morning, I take comfort in the fact that, I'll just be open for a moment. I told somebody that this week. Had they been able to resuscitate Dad, and he, in a way, came back to life and was with us today, the truth is, he's going to die again. And as hard as that is to think about, points me to one who died once for all and will never die again. Who I can trust for my salvation. Who I can trust in my daily life. I think it's interesting. We're going to close with this. I know I said that once before, but this time I mean it. (laughs) Because I want you to see this. Look at how Lazarus comes out. Jesus speaks in verse 43 with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Literally, it means outside. Lazarus, get out here. And he that was dead came forth. Now that's impressive of itself. Because if you have children, you know that those two statements do not usually go together. So and so, come here. And they came. <laughs> Never happens. <laughs> and my kids are alive. But Lazarus obeys, comes forth, and notice what it says, this is interesting. I think John meant this for a reason. He didn't give a scripture needlessly. It says, Lazarus came out, came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes. And his face was bound with a napkin, bound with a napkin. And Jesus says to them, loose him and let him go. But I want you to turn for a moment to chapter number 20. We're going to see a very similar picture but not exactly the same. This is the first day of the week after Jesus is raised from the dead and Mary Magdalene got up and she went to the sepulcher and a stone was taken away. She came back and she got Peter and said, Did, you know, Jesus died and he was in the grave. If we saw him put him in the grave. Now the tomb's open. And he's gone. What has happened? Someone steal him. Did, is he still in there? What, what is it? Verse number three, if you would, of chapter 20. Peter therefore went forth And that other disciple, and came to the sepulchre, that other disciple most likely is John. He's giving this in a first-hand experience. Verse 4, So they ran both together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulchre. And I think this is why it impacted Peter. Peter saw Lazarus come out, all tied up. In fact, the way that they bound it, they'd take a large sheet, and they'd start behind their feet, they'd take it behind their back, and they'd take it all the way over the front. And then... They'd bind it around. So you can kind of imagine the top is closed in. So you kind of imagine him wobbling out. He's all bound. Can you imagine being dead four days? And then all of a sudden you're getting up and you're like, what is going on? And so John saw that. But then in verse 5, And he stooping down looked in and saw the linen clothes lying. And yet when he not in, then come Simon Peter following him. He went into the sepulcher and see it the linen clothes lie and the napkin. That was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. And that may not seem like a big deal, but what it means is when Jesus died, no one had to cut him loose. No one had to unbind him, and he didn't need any help. He folded that napkin and set it out almost, I think, as a picture for his disciples. Hey, I'm, I wasn't taken away. I, I'm fine. And let me tell you this message one more time. Jesus in His resurrection says, I love you. I know what I'm doing. And I'm totally in control. If you know those things this morning and you believe that they're true, do they affect how we live? Do they affect what we say? Do they change how we speak to people? That our little problems, our daily problems, issues really don't matter. Our complaints about the small things in life or the big things are still part of his plan because he loves you, because he knows what he's doing and he's fully in control. Let's pray together.